guest today. I am joined by the one and only legendary NBA coach, George Carl. George, what's going on? How you doing? Uh, life is good. You know, it's quarantine and trying to find out our new world of COVID-19 and <clears throat> trying to figure out where our world's going to go and the racism world is it's an interesting time for everybody. Yeah, this COVID-19 situation has everyone on pause. And now, as you just said, this new racial situation has the world crazy right now. It's really crazy right now. Well, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, I think America has always reacted well to when they've been in crisis and disarray a little bit. And I think our country will figure this out and somehow, some way, come out being a better country and hopefully better for African Americans and minorities in our country. I, I'm a big believer that um, uh, I think what has happened on the streets of the city and the cities of our country and the way our populace has reacted, I think, is going to turn out to be something that's going to make us a better country and hopefully much better for the blacks, uh, black, the black people of our society and. Right, and we need that. We need to address it. We need to change, and I think everybody's got to pitch in to make it work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, certainly things are changing, and some changes are taking place. But the pressure has continued. Has has the pressure has to be continued to be applied because that way change will come. There's numerous play, NBA players coming out now saying they're unsure if they want to play in a season because of what's going on with the racial tension. They might take away some of the focus of that. Well, I saw that today, and there's, I kind of known that there was a minority of players that wasn't as interested in playing as much as everybody was kind of portraying it or, or being yeah. on the news. Right. Uh, there was, a, I don't know, some people have said as much as 30% of the players weren't really sure they wanted to, to play this year. But I think the financial burdens and reasons yeah. of going on the court and trying to keep the salary structure at this fantastic level that it's at right now, I think right. players are realizing that they're going to have to sacrifice a little bit of their summer, sacrifice maybe a little bit of their influence uh, to get in, to finish up the NBA year. Yeah, it's great these basketball NBA players are stepping up because the NBA is a massive platform with a lot of reach. As one player, LeBron James, with this leading the coalition for um make voting better for blacks in certain high high areas. That's a great thing that he's doing. But LeBron's always stepped out on social issues with his adding to his case as one of the best players ever. No, I think LeBron has become a great spokesman, um, a great, uh, you know, he cares. You know, when, when I read about LeBron, I, one thing I always say, he cares. He has passion for caring about his hometown. He cares about you know, his black heritage, he cares about players, he cares about, you know, the, uh, the other players. And he's just really, a, in a very, very leadership way, he shows caring, which I think is unusual today. Very true. So you've been keeping busy in your downtime. Tell us about your podcast, Truth and Basketball. What does it bring? Uh, what's fun for me is um, it gives me you know, a form of instead of being on an interview for four or five minutes or right. maybe maybe 10 minutes, you you got 45 minutes to an hour to 
expand your thoughts, uh, explain your your failures, and celebrate, you know, some of the great teams that I, I've been a part of. And, uh, I mean, we, can, we go all over the place, you know, whatever kind of comes up to us. Uh, we've done things on Seattle. We've done things on Milwaukee. Um, you know, we actually, you know, we talked a little bit about my time in Golden State. Right. Uh, we're going we're to do a podcast probably next week on my time here in Denver. Uh, so, you know, we jump all over the place. And, um, you know, I, it gives me an opportunity to connect with old friends and old players and I, that I enjoy being, uh, to kind of rehash and celebrate our time together. Yeah, that's the great thing about podcasts. The conversation always flows, and different topics come up naturally. It's like a natural conversation. A podcast is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, podcast. You can go deeper. You can go. You know, you can explain and be more meaningful to your thoughts. Right. And uh, I think you know. I think fans actually identify with maybe getting to know a little bit more of what really happens. You know, we named it Truth in Basketball, and what's funny about it is we made an emphasis of when we have someone on with us that we want to go deeper on the truth of the game. You know, what what is right. what really happened? Right. Not what the spin or the perception was, but what really was going on. Right. Over your career, 27 years coaching, as you alluded to, you coached some great teams, been a part of some great teams, left some great teams over 1,100 wins. You coach some great players, from Gary Payton to Sean Kent to <laughs> Ty Lawson, DeMarcus Cousins, Ray Allen. How was it coaching those players? Like, what, what about – how can you say your coaching styles affected those players? Because I'm sure they all learned something from you. Well, I think, I think the one thing most players would say is that I have a passion to win, and I have a passion to win by playing together and playing as a team. Uh, I think the game. I think the game of basketball is a we game and not a me game. I think the players also know that we love the gym, and we think the gym is where you get better and you get smarter, and that's a big part of being a pro. You know, a college player doesn't, you know, doesn't have to have a passion to improve. But if you don't improve in pro basketball, you lose your job, right? You know, because everybody is in this. I mean, it's it's a, it's great to be paid a hell of a lot of money to play the game that you love, right? And but in the same sense, you, you got to understand that to be that guy, you got to be a leader of your 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 professionalism. You got to grow up. You got to be mature. Right. You got to be focused. You got to be disciplined, and you got. And the guy that is in charge of making those demands is the coach. Right. And uh, so, you know, it's um, when it works, it feels great. You, you know, I, what I've always felt about bas- the NBA and basketball in general right. is when you play the game the right way, you, f- you feel like you're unbeatable. And when you're playing it with the flow and the rhythm of good players making each other better, it makes it makes it awful hard to not feel excited about the game. I had the pleasure of having Gary Payton on the, on NBA panel um, like a few like a couple months ago, and he said one of the players got under, got under his skin was John Stockton because he tried to get to John Stockton, and John Stockton just stared at him with a blank face 
I just lost it when he told me that. Can you talk more on those mess ups you guys had with Utah and John Stockton's mess up with Gary Payton? Man. I think the truth of the matter is one of the great matchups of basketball that nobody talks about because it's Gary Payton and Sean versus Carl Malone and, and John Stockton. Right. Uh, you know, you're talking about three Hall of Famers, and I think Sean someday hopefully will get in the Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, but you're talking about a – I mean, we played each other probably over over 50 times, maybe 70 times, maybe 80 times. We played four times every year. Right. And we met in the playoffs, I think, three times, maybe four times. So, you know, it was such a – you know, and, and Malone and Stockton were kind of proven, and Gary and Sean had to kind of take the mantle from them. Right. And it was it was fantastic. I mean, uh, and then St- and Sloan and I had a, a competitive nature to each other. So I think it was something that the league has never really harped on. But I think it was one of the quiet stories of NBA basketball that was pretty special. Yeah, I definitely can agree. You had a firsthand a firsthand seat to this. How was it? You coached them. How was this watching this on floor with Gary Payton and Sean Kemp on the sideline? Because they were live city before the Clippers were known as live city, basically, even though this was in Seattle. They were exciting. I mean, well, I remember watching Seattle games, and every every play, there's Gary throwing up the song, the song out of nowhere, getting the crowd hyped. Well, you have, you know, Gary was a great defensive player, a great competitor, a mean competitor. And Sean was one of the best athletes I've ever coached, if not the best athlete. I've ever coached, and I think, you know, we tried to get as many two-man basketball games to where Gary could get the lob into the game or the dunk into the game right. and make make Sean feel comfortable uh, as Sean's career advanced and he got a little more of a, a basket, you know, a shooting game and a ball yeah. handling game. But, I mean, he grew a little bit, but it was fun to be a part of two young players. Right. I think I, I got there when Sean was probably 20, 21. And Gary was, I think, his second year in the league. And, uh, you know, they had their we, – we had our fights. We had our our moments where we didn't agree with everything. Right. But I, what I always loved about both of them, that they loved to compete. They, compete. they played. They were ready to play. And they were dedicated to play the game the right way when the game started. Some of our problems in practice and off the court, we had some disagreements, but they were great competitors and great talents. And fortunately, they turned into a great, great players, which made us a really good team. And a compliment to him, like I said, you just you coached a lot of great players. But one player that sticks out to you, I believe you said, was Nate McMillan. He was a real difference, real difference maker for your, for one of your squads, one of the great teams you coached. I mean. Well, I think every team, every good team or great team has a what I call a glue guy. Okay. A guy that makes everybody kind of fit and, right. uh, and makes everybody connected. And Nate was that guy for us. Nate was, you know, he could play point, two, three. He could probably play four if you wanted to play him in today's game. But he was he was totally unselfish, totally committed to the coach and to the team. And um, I, I, 
I don't think I don't think we would have had half we wouldn't have had as much success if Nate McMillan wasn't in Seattle. Nate McMillan I say I've said that Gary a lot of a lot of ways was the was the heart of our team. Right. But Nate was the soul of our team in many ways. Okay. Fast forwarding, um um, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm, I've always been, I'm a Denver Nuggets fan. And one thing that sticks out to me about the squad, the years we were there, is that the team played fast and played as one unit. We didn't have, like, an all-star there because it was hard getting players to go there. But Carmelo was there for a stint. But the team, especially after Carmelo left, the team played as one, and I love the way you put all the guys together. And one, one particular year sticks out, the 2012-13 season, that team was loaded. And we didn't have an all-star, but they all played together. We played like Wilson Chandler, Fareed, you know, Fournier, Gallinari. I love Corey Brewer's hustle. He, I love watching him play on the team and also led by Ty Lawson. Can you speak on Ty Lawson real quick and how he was the engine for that squad with four of those teams? Well, you know, I think probably some of the most fun – I've said that the most fun I've ever had in basketball was when we traded Melo and everybody thought we were going to be awful. And thought we were going to the bottom, and we actually, I thought, got to be a better basketball team without him. Yeah. And a lot of the credit goes to all those young guys getting an opportunity, and they were ready to play basketball when the opportunity came their way. Right. And the key, and the key to the team, in a lot of ways, was as we just got done talking about Nate McMillan, but we had Andre Miller as yeah. that blue guy, and yeah. Andre Miller was the kind of the guy off the bench. That was this. Andre should be should be a coach because he he played as a coach and he kind of he knew what the game needed when he went into the game. Yeah. And he knew if a guy was struggling, how to help him. I mean, he has so many intangibles of the game of basketball. Right. And then of course Ty Ty and Andre were two different point guards, but both of them were really good. Ty was speed and quickness and attacked the defense with the ball. Yeah. And Andre was the guy that kind of figured out the defense, you know, threw over the top, executed a play, could post up a little bit. So I think, you know, the, the two guys I really admire off of that team are Ty and Andre. Yes, I love watching that team play. Multiple <laughs> playoff runs. <laughs> I was really upset when he lets you go. I'm not going to lie to you. I was like, oh, man, then the Bronx saw arrow didn't work out. I was like, oh, what? <laughs> Tom Hill's all, <laughs> I guess. It was crazy. Yeah, crazy things happen in the game of basketball every year. It happens every year. Something goes, wow, that really happened? <laughs> yes. Um, what are your thoughts on um, Seattle getting another NBA team? How soon do you think it will be? I'm sorry? What are your thoughts on Seattle getting another NBA team and how soon do you think it may be before they, they're awarded another team? Because those teams, you, you saw firsthand, those fans were passionate and they loved their basketball there. Well, I have no idea why we don't have it, Darren. You know, I'm still baffled by, you know, it's, I think 15 years now that right. Oklahoma City. and um, I have no idea how it blew up. Uh, you know, every once in a while, I keep hearing stories that David Stern just didn't like, just didn't like Seattle and the way that he was treated there. But I have no idea. All I know is Seattle is one of the great cities of America. It's uh, one of my favorite cities, and 
my best, my best, probably my best stop on my NBA career, right. and it deserves the team. And I, I don't know the facts behind when and when and if the league is going to expand. Right. Uh, but I think if it does expand, I think there's people in Seattle and there are money people in Seattle who would like to have a team back. Right. And now I think they're getting a new building now. And I, I think there are things moving in a direction that if and when there's expansion and if and when a team wants to move, I think Seattle's got to be on top of the list. And I, and I, that'd be a great celebration. I think it'd be fun, fun, fun. To bring the old band back together in Seattle with Gary and Sean and Detlef and Sam and yeah, that'd be crazy. Wilson, and it'd be fun to to see if the organization could incorporate some of the guys of the past. You coached in a different era from today. How would you think your coaching style would translate to the to the day of game with the develops like a Kevin Durant, which you saw growing up in Seattle? Well, he started growing in Seattle before he turned into the arguably best player on the planet today. How do you see yourself? How would you coach him? Would you just let him go, or would you, like? Oh, I think Kevin, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Kevin's a top, in my mind, he's a top three player, maybe top four player in the game of basketball when he's healthy. Right. Uh, you know, I thought at times he was he was challenging LeBron through the, the GOAT. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, but you know his injuries have hurt. I'm happy that he got his championships, and now hopefully he can get healthy and come back next year and and be ready to go. Today's player, I think, I think the way I played, players like to play. Players like to play fast. Yeah, players, players like to play aggressive. Uh, and I think you know, I think, and I think from my standpoint, it was what I, I feel I did well in my coaching career, not only. Fortunate to win a lot of games, but I think players got better in the systems right. that we ran. They improved, and I think their decision would improve. Their, they understand that we loved the gym, and and we were we believed in work and not not being lazy. And uh, and I think players enjoyed the the culture that we put on. We put not only on the court for games, but also in the practice court in the days off. How do you think the three-point, um, the way the three-point game has landed into the NBA? What do you think? What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? How teams are firing record numbers for three-pointers, like the Rockets? <laughs> well, I think the game is moving. Uh, I'm, not, I, I was, you know, I always, I was an ABA guy, and when I first got in the NBA, the NBA guys didn't shoot the three very much. In the ABA, we did. Right. But I never thought it would get like it is now. I think it's a little crazy. Uh, but the analytics say it's the way to play. For me, you know, our, 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 our saying that we had was we love the rim, we like the three. So, like, if you have a choice of driving it to the rim and get a layup, yeah. we, wanted, we always thought that was first priority. And the second priority was if on your – if the team – if the defense makes a mistake – and find the open three. Right. And uh, but I think today's game is they don't. I think they love the three sometimes and like to like the layup. And I think the game still says you got to take the ball to the paint, you got to take the ball to the rim, and you got to create a defensive mistake by by attacking the defense or executing the play. 
right. to create your shot. I think today's game too often is the freelancing has created a lot of bad bad shot selection. And I'm a big believer yeah. that your shot selection is key. I definitely agree with you on that. We have elite players coming down from their court. I mean, I can say excluding Steph Curry because he's one of a, he's one of one, but some players are not as detailed in that range. They just come down, pump fake, maybe step back five or three, and that helps defense get back. I mean, that helps just slows down the defense and you have an open lift on the end. No, I mean there there are games that I I shake my head at. There's no question, but. Uh, I think you know the the changes happened for the last three or four years. The up the uh, you know up uptake of a lot of three ball three point shooting. Right. I think I think coaches will get a balance and maybe more of a philosophy of what is a good shot and what isn't a good shot. You got your one thousandth win against Toronto. What was what was in your mind when you got that win and? Did you feel it was overdue? And what, what was your thoughts on that team, led by Nene, Al Harrington, Chauncey Billups, big shot, Ty Lawson? One player on that team I love watching was Al Harrington. I think he was underrated because we all know Al Harrington had like a set shot, but teams let him, left him open at the top of the key. I remember this vividly watching this different other team. Well, you know, the whole thing is Al, Al was a, a, a great veteran, Right. A great teammate uh, could play, you know, could play anywhere three, four, and five. Right. Uh, and people, I, I think people underestimated him a lot when he was with us. I think people thought he was kind of at the end of his career. Yeah. But he was still pretty damn good. And um, you know, I, I loved coaching Al. Al was tough. He was, as I said, he was. A, he helped younger players. He put his arm around a lot younger players and and did a lot of positive things in the locker room for the for the team and for the coach and um, I, I, he's one of, he was one of the bright spots of of my years here in Denver the couple of years we had Al on our team. Yeah, he definitely. <laughs> um, Tonsi Billups, what did he bring to the Denver Nuggets teams that you that you were um, coach of? Besides yeah, I mean, obviously. Chauncey Phillips is a leader and a winner. Uh, he's a, he's a very talented player, but his 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 greatness is in his ability to lead men and and direct them as a point guard. His greatness, I think, is in his leadership in the locker room of giving trust and belief uh, to the system that he's playing. I mean, I mean, he's a damn good player, but yeah. you're not going to look at him as a great shooter. I mean, there are a lot of other guys that are probably better shooters. Right. His ball handling, he's a good, a good point guard, but he wasn't a great point guard. But the thing he did is he won. He won. He won games. Right. And I was amazed. I mean, it's, I think he went eight, six or eight straight years to the conference finals. And, you know, that – that stuff is, you know, that, that's Michael Jordan stuff. That's LeBron stuff. That's yeah. Magic and Bird stuff, getting to the conference finals every year of your career for a long period of time, maybe almost 10 years. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great citizen of Denver. He's a very popular here. Right. And, I, and he does a good job on ESPN now, so I'm, 
I hope he stays engaged in the game. I hear he wants to maybe get involved in management of an NBA team. And yeah, I've heard his name in Detroit. But uh, but the guy the guy has a he has a big heart. He has a smart mind, and he loves to compete and win basketball games. Yeah, we've been hitting the rumblings about Thomas wanting to get into all um, management for a while. I think he'll be. I think Denver's opened up a slot for him. That's always been my thoughts on that. When I first started hearing it years ago, I've heard that for a while, but you know, I'm, I I don't know. If, yeah, you know, I'm, I think Chauncey right now wants to kind of get in at the top rather than maybe work his way up to the top. Uh, and, you know, he has a pedigree that he might get that opportunity someplace sometime. Very true. Your 61 Seattle team, would you put that as one of the best teams you've ever coached that you had assembled around you? The team that played Michael in the finals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was uh, – I think, you know, we had a stretch there where we lost in the first round, two round when Michael was out. I think if we would have got to the finals without Michael, I think we would have really had, you know, we would have grown up and, and it would have helped us against when we played Michael. Right. Um, and I, as I said a lot, many times, it, if we would have had Nate McMillan and Nate was hurt in that finals, yeah. And he played, I think he only played two and a half games. And all of the games he played, we won all three of them. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, he was our glue guy. And, and, and when you're playing a great team like Chicago, you need everybody. And I think if we would have had him healthy, it might have been a different story. Masagi Jerry, he was a mastermind behind the hall for Carmelo Anthony. Can you speak on that move he did to bring the child in that led to multiple playoff runs after Carmelo left? Well, I think he got it's one of the be, I think it's one of the best trades ever made in the NBA. I mean, you traded a really an all-star player, but you rebuilt your team without going through a, a year of losing or right. two. Usually, rebuilding takes two or three years of losing. Right. And um, we rebuilt. In my making the trade, and we got a lot of these young kids that were like Gallo and Chandler, yeah. got Raymond Sheldon that we turned into Andre, uh, but we got Costa, Timo, and I don't know who we got with the draft picks, but I think Fareed was probably one of the draft picks. And right. So you know, you 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 overhauled. Carmelo wants to get out, and when that happens, it usually takes two or three years to recover. Denver didn't have to go through that until they fired me. Right. Right. And plus, when players demand where they want to go, that basically takes the trade value down and teams try and lowball you. But it wasn't the case with what Masai did. He got a haul for Carmelo. Have to commend him for that. <laughs> have to commend him for that. I was surprised uh, myself when it went down. <laughs> um. Who would you say was your toughest coaching opponent? Oh, there are a lot of good ones. I mean, uh, probably the guy that, uh, you know, you, you can go back to guys like Larry Brown and, and uh, Jack Ramsey. I mean, I, have a, I had a long career playing against Yeah. Him. You got Phil Jackson probably has beaten me as much as anybody. Right. Pop and I have had some great battles over the years and in the playoffs. 
But the guy that I probably enjoyed the most is what we talked about earlier is Jerry Sloan. I mean, Jerry Sloan, because we played each other so often in the playoffs, um, we got to know each other really well, and we also got to know how to coach against each other really well. And so I, I would say uh, I think they're, you know, uh, you know Pat Riley, I, I had a lot of success against Pat, against Pat. But in the same sense, I think he's a great coach. Um, I mean, the league, the, what I've always said about the NBA is there's not, there's not any team being poorly coached. There's a lot of teams in the league that lose and have poor records. But the system says 15 teams got to lose, or maybe more than that every year. So, I mean, now and today in the NBA with as many coaches as every organization has, you have a lot of brilliant minds in every city of an NBA, of an NBA franchise. George, thank you so much for joining me today. It was an honor speaking with you. It was an honor watching you coach my favorite team. Like I said, that Denver Nuggets team you ran with, it they were they were special. They were special. Well, they got a pretty good team now. Hopefully they'll have some good success in July. Yeah. Yeah, before you go, what's the thoughts on Nikolai Jokic and what he brings to the game? Well, I think he's unusual. I mean, having one of the top, I think, top ten passers in the game of basketball at the center position makes the game of basketball easy. Right. Uh, makes it flow has good rhythm, and he's a, I mean, he does a lot of things really well, but the thing he does really well is he, he he's a great passer, yeah. and he makes he makes other players better, which big guys usually are not in that category. Big guys don't make other players better. Right. Guards and usually, you know, talented players make other players better, but Jokic being a big guy, he makes a lot of little guys really good. Yes, one thing I know about I know about Jokic, and I said before, he does he does his moves so nonchalantly, like, okay, I'm gonna step back, shoot this in your face, bang, like he just he just does it, like it's so easy. Well, he's old school. <laughs> he doesn't jump very high. You know, he uses his body like a, an expert. You know, he's got he's clever, and he's uh, as I said, he's a great passer, and he's one of the few guys in basketball that can play inside and outside. Right. Yes, George, thank you for joining me. I'll do this again if you're one of you available again. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, man. Appreciate it talking. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, that was the legendary George Carl. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Catch you next time.